Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Kristen Van Uden. Kristen serves as the author spokesperson at Sophia Institute Press. She studies the persecution of Catholics under communist regimes. She has been featured on a wide range of media platforms, including Coast to Coast AM, The Federalist, and the Catholic Faith Network. And Kristen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me back. Well, we talked about atheism last time, so we're not really moving the needle further. We're just kind of explaining <laughs> it. Right. Uh, you have That's a book true. coming out. Yeah, you have a book coming out called When the Sickle Swings, Stories of Catholics Who Survived Communist Oppression through Sophia mm-hmm. Institute Press. Um, this this book's been a while in the making, right? It's been a few years and it's it's really starting to, it's come to fruition now, right? That's right. So usually I'm on your program to discuss reprints that Sophia produces, but today I actually get to discuss my own book. So this is authored by me, researched by me. So very exciting to be representing my original work. And this is a project that I started back in college, actually. I have always been fascinated. I think really the through line with all of this is martyrdom and saints who gave it all and made the ultimate sacrifice for the faith. And when looking at the 20th century in our own contemporary times, many of these martyrs suffered under totalitarian regimes. And so I studied the Holocaust, of course, and um, Catholic experience under the Holocaust, which is somewhat little known, but then looked at communism and its overtly atheist ideology and its overt and covert oppression of specifically the Catholic Church. Um, The Church was targeted not only because religion was considered to be the opiate of the people, as Lenin said, but also because of the ties to the Vatican as a country, as a sovereign nation, as um, the communists would often accuse Catholics of being foreign spies and agents of capitalism and agents of a foreign power. And so this multifaceted persecution I found was not often talked about, just as the history of the gulag as a whole really isn't. And communism spread all throughout the globe and was implemented in startlingly similar ways in various geographic locales, but also, of course, with differences for each region. So I started conducting these interviews as an undergraduate and continued. Uh, The majority of them uh, took place last year. And I was privileged to speak to people from across the globe. So this book mainly focuses on Cuba, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Romania, uh, simply due to who wanted to talk to me and who wanted to tell their stories. And they're representative, though not complete, of course, of the experience of communism. And I really hope to continue this work to continue to collect stories of those who just haven't told them yet, who maybe think that they're not interesting enough or not important, when, of course, they are, and they're very inspiring Catholics today. Well, you know, it's not only inspiring, but it, it, it's a reminder when we start whining about what's going on in our world today, right, mm-hmm. that that we're not breaking any new ground, right? There have been people who have far that have suffered far worse persecution than anything we're seeing. And now it may get worse, and I wouldn't be surprised if it does. So not only are they stories that we can say, wow, that's great but it's stories that should empower us to remember we're called to be saints. We're called to be martyrs, whether they're red or white, to defend mm-hmm. the faith and, and live so that future generations can see the importance and what faith looks like lived out in a culture that 
is hostile to it, right? That's right. It really does put things into perspective for our own modern challenges. So we take for granted things as simple as attending mass, receiving the sacraments, being able to go to confession, to speak somewhat openly about the faith. And just these very basic fundamentals of our faith were outlawed for half of the 20th century in almost half of the world. So one example from a lady named Olga, who I interviewed from Czechoslovakia, is she was she she grew up in communism. So she was young when the war ended and she never really knew a life outside of communism until, of course, she uh, fled the country. But she was born Catholic to Catholic parents who kept the faith. And she says that this would not be odd or remarkable, except for the fact that she was born Catholic under communism when the pressure to give up the faith, either piecemeal or altogether apostasy, was so great. And she discusses the ordeal of going to mass and how it was not easy at all. Um, In Czechoslovakia, one challenge that faced the laity was the fact that about 20% of the priests collaborated with the communist government. So there was this false structure known as the National Church, which basically is what we see in the church in China today, where the state would appoint the bishops, the state would call the shots and kind of reduce doctrine to some feel-good, something that could be agreed upon by the communists, which, of course, is horribly sinful. And so the laity had to avoid these priests, and so they had to find priests they could trust. Um, Olga recounts going to Mass, and her parents would tell them to keep their eyes down because In this way, they'd be able to maintain plausible deniability if they were hauled before state security. They could say say with a clear conscience, I didn't know who else was there. I don't know the name of the celebrant. I have no idea what he, um, where he came from or where he was going. So they protected the identity of the clergy and the other laity in this way. And just constantly having to be on the watch in that way, that's not something we think about at all when we go to mass. We just uh, of course, try to f- focus on the sacrifice of the mass, but we're not avoiding others' gaze or others looking around to see who's there. So, so day-to-day actions like that had to be modified in this extreme way just to get by. It's a reminder, right, that you know Marx and Engel put together the Communist Manifesto in the mid-1800s, but it really was the early 1900s when it kind of swept across the world, right? Whether it was the Bolshevik revolution, whatever it was, right? That's when it was kind of put into practice. And, you know, it may not be half the world that we had back in the 20th century, but there's still large pockets where you're talking North Korea, China, mm-hmm. Cuba. So, I mean, it, they're on and on and on where communism still, for some reason, is embraced. We even see it in our young people today, right? Our college graduates who, now, you know, if you take polls, they a majority think communism is good. Very sad. So Marx and Engels were 19th century thinkers, and the their doctrines were really reified and put into practice in the 20th century, starting, of course, with the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Uh, it's ironic that my book comes out in November because the October Revolution actually happened in November because of the switch uh-huh. between the Gregorian and Julian calendars. So kind of uh, <laughs> apropos. The Soviet Union, of course, was the major behemoth that launched um, actually putting this doctrine into practice, and then it spread like a virus throughout the globe. And today, as you mentioned, there actually are, I believe the number is seven uh, current communist regimes. So Catholics continue to suffer and, and everyone continues to suffer in Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea, China, of course, 
And we've seen Nicaragua and Venezuela lately with the unrest there. Um, and I might be forgetting one one or two, but this is not right. an ideology that has gone away, even in this overt sense that these countries literally still embrace communist doctrine. They have the hammer and sickle on their flags. They are obviously and clearly communist. But also, as you alluded to, this idea that communist thought has infiltrated the West in this sort of softer, more secretive way, um, especially when I interviewed individuals from Cuba, the, <laughs> they are always righteously incensed at the fact that college kids go around wearing Che Guevara t-shirts and glorifying this murderous ideology. Um, one of the gentlemen that I interviewed actually was a victim of Che Guevara himself. Um, and this man's name was Polo. He and his family were landowners and Che Guevara rolled through their land on a tank and seized it himself and stole their property and their livelihood right out from underneath their noses. So this is uh, born of ignorance. Of course, there's been a concerted effort in the American school system to downplay the horrors of communism. Who has here has heard of the Holodomor, the Ukrainian famine that killed millions under the watch of Stalin. Um, this started really back with the FDR administration itself, because since the Soviet Union was our great ally during World War II, there was this sort of gag order on calling them out on any of their human rights abuses because we felt that, or FDR felt that that would um, kind of hurt the war effort or hurt our ability to defeat the Nazis. So there's been this silence ever since the beginning um, and certain voices are breaking through. And that's really what I hope to do with my book. We see it today, whether it's Black Lives Matter, right, the LGBTQ agenda, right? There really are, you know, there's there's that communist foundation that they all follow. And, you know, early in the book, you talk about the blueprint for oppression. And maybe you can go through those five mm -hmm. steps just, just to remind people how this thing progresses and, and how the focus really is the Catholic Church. Yes, it's, it's very stunning to see the specifically anti-Catholic measures that are taken. Of course, all religions are targeted to one degree or another, but as I mentioned before, the church is targeted not only as a spiritual entity, but as this political entity. So these five steps that communist regimes take against the church, usually within the first several years, are number one, outlaw the public worship of the church. So this is making mass attendance illegal or in the very least discouraged, reducing the church presence in public spaces. So putting <clears throat> uh, the kibosh on processions, pilgrimages and public celebrations such as that to really remove the church and its role, um, both spiritually and in a socioeconomic way from the mental, um, the, co the collective consciousness of the people to replace that with the state. So famously, Lenin outlawed Christmas in the Soviet Union, which is why New Year's is the big holiday in Russia to this day. So they'll they'll decorate New Year's trees instead of Christmas trees with a red star at the top. So the state replacing the church in terms of public holidays and um, really what we set our calendars by. Number two is round up the clergy and religious. So this is an actual genocidal deportation move where you confine the clergy and either expel them from the country or confine them to prisons or forced labor. So in the Czechoslovak context, this took the form of what's known as Operation K and Operation R, which were two initiatives uh, named after the Czech words for um, monk and nun, klustieri, and um, the word for nun, can't remember, starts with an R. 
And over 3,000 religious were rounded up over the course of several evenings in 1949. Um, the nuns were pressed into labor in factories where they were forced to work in inhumane conditions as just these pawns of the state and, of course, not able to live out their vocations in these horrible conditions and suffered really a white martyrdom. Um, on this note, the bishops are especially targeted in Czechoslovakia. A, a huge percentage of the bishops were actually murdered outright. And of course, many have heard of the case of Cardinal Mincenti, the Hungarian cardinal who suffered in a prison. Um, and I, I interview people who were involved in those circles of clergy who suffered in that more extreme way. Number three is to seize and repurpose church property. So, of course, this is following the communist belief that there is no such thing as private property. All is owned by the state to be distributed to each according to his need, which, of course, the arbiter of that is the communist state. So they would steal the treasures of the church for their own financial gain, ensure that the infrastructure of worship is obliterated, so make the cathedrals unavailable to worshipers. Um, and even, for example, in the Soviet Union, the, in the 20s, monasteries were converted into prisons. So two birds with one stone there. Number yep. four is to control the laity. Um, this is a, a softer sort of, sort of psychological warfare tactic that puts social pressure on practicing Catholics somewhere, anything from ostracization to lack of job opportunities. Many people I interviewed were unable to get into the college of their choice because they were not practicing members of the Communist Party on principle. Um, just makes daily lives so difficult that they'll have no, they'll be sort of cornered into the temptation to apostatize, to submit to re-education, etc. Um, this is where the informants also play a role, kind of weaponizing the community members against each other. And then finally, on the topic of informers is this attempt at infiltration of the church hierarchy. So in Czechoslovakia, as I mentioned, we see this with the national church placing its party men in positions of authority. In the U.S., we have evidence of this happening even um, with Bella Dodd's admission. Um, she was a communist mm -hmm. agent who later converted uh, that she placed men within the seminaries to try to destroy the church from within. And then in the Cuban and Latin American context, this takes the form of liberation theology, which is kind of this um, bastardization of the gospel in order to serve communist ends. So with that, that is their playbook that has been repeated the world over and is even being repeated in certain ways today. Well, and you talk about in the book, when you talk about Cuba back in the early 60s, you talk about this example of free candy. Maybe you can talk about that a little mm -hmm. bit, just because I think it wakes sure. people up in terms of how they, how they, how they move and how they use uh, things psychologically. Yes. Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories from the book because it's just such a powerful, memorable image. So um, this has to do with the propaganda offensive at the schools. So, of course, as we know today with some of the, the woke ideology being pushed at public schools, targeting the minds of children is very important to communist and totalitarian systems because they like to form uh, the next generation as early as possible and, and form impressionable minds. So in Cuba, right away after Fidel's revolution, um, this would play out across elementary schools throughout the country, where the teachers on the first day of orientation would say to the children, okay, stick out your hands, close your eyes, and ask God for a piece of candy, which is, of course, ridiculous. And the children would obey. And, of course, nothing would happen. No candy would materialize. 
a few moments would pass and then the teachers would say, okay, now ask Fidel for a piece of candy. Of course, referring to Fidel Castro, the dictator. And as they did that, the teachers would go around and place a piece of candy in everybody's hand, cementing this idea that Fidel and the state are the ones that you can really trust who will provide for your needs and provide this worldly utopia, and that God is just a myth who is made up and doesn't have any power whatsoever. So to someone, this this really psychological conditioning that they're undertaking, this onslaught of of brainwashing must have been so powerful, which... um, of course, some people resisted, but it explains how difficult it is to break out of that communist mindset if you've lived under it. Well, I think the other thing when you read the stories of the people and you and you're just scratching the surface, right? I mean, you're, you've picked out some people, but there's so many thousands of others that have lived this. Mm-hmm. But growing mm-hmm. up in a strong Catholic family where faith is number one is really the answer to being able to withstand what's going on here. And we see it in the United States. How many people are going to mass, right? There's fewer and fewer people participating in mass that are practicing their faith because any little bump, it shakes them off. And if we don't have a strong faith, we're not going to be able to for these tactics and these challenges that, that communist regimes and even communists within our own country are trying to impose upon us. Yes, that's a great point, because many of the stories in the book are inspiring, even from political or worldly terms of success. So I interviewed a Slovak politician who's quite prominent and actually orchestrated the candle demonstration, which spearheaded their velvet revolution, which toppled communism in the country. But we have to remember that any of these temporal victories or gains are still secondary to the primary goal, which is to hold on to your soul during this onslaught of attack from this demonic ideology of communism. So this is something that each person I interviewed for the book really drove home is that whatever political resistance they were able to muster. And I also interviewed many veterans of the Bay of Pigs invasion. So Cuban freedom fighters who really put these principles into action. They could not do that without that strong foundation of faith and the daily practice of keeping close to the sacraments and prayer and trusting God and surrendering to God. That was the foundation that was necessary for any of these um, worldly gains, but also is the only thing that matters at the end of the day. So they emphasize that keeping guard over your own soul is the most important thing. Um, One example that illustrates this that comes to mind is from a lady who I interviewed from Romania. And she grew up, of course, in the Ceausescu era. Uh, Nicolae Ceausescu was perhaps one of the most intense and insane communist dictators. He uh, was among the last to fall, executed on Christmas Day, um, finally. But while he was in power... He would go on the radio and rant, and and also on TV, rant for four hours at a time during the day, just his tired communist talking points, ranting against religion, against the West, and all sorts of things. And um, this woman, Ada, remembers that her family, even though it was required to watch Ceausescu, would turn off the TV and instead pray the rosary during that time. So such a small act of resistance when you think about it in compared to public protests and things like that. But really what they were doing was protecting their own minds and their own souls from the psychological warfare and making sure that they didn't fall prey to that. So it was these small acts of resistance that in the end culminated into these great victories of saving your nation and your soul. 
I mean, the other thing that comes across when you read the book and you and you see all these different individuals, and again, you're just scratching the surface. There's thousands of them, but it's men, women, it's religious, it's priests, it's laity, it's mm-hmm. everybody. We all have that responsibility, and we can look to our, you know, our clergy to lead us, and that's great. But if they don't, we still have that responsibility to remain faithful and fight for truth, don't we? That's exactly right. And yes, I was very lucky to have a pretty diverse and representative um, cast of characters who were interviewed for the book. So from, as you said, the clergy, as well as the laity, men and women alike. Um, But I think the, the infrequency and the unavailability of sacraments really placed on the laity even more of a responsibility because when priests were being murdered and targeted and persecuted, they very similar to the Catholics in Japan who were waiting for the Jesuit missionaries and sometimes had to go for, for decades without the sacraments had to resort sometimes to keeping the faith um, even without the sacraments. So one example is from the political prisons of Cuba um, the way the circulars were designed, there were priests interned there, but only on certain floors. And so, of course, those priests would say mass whenever possible, and the Catholics in the prison would attend this mass and receive the graces of the sacraments. But on the floors when there was not a priest, the people would actually gather every Sunday to keep their Sunday obligation and read through the prayers of the mass, or if they had them memorized, recite the prayers of the mass all the way up until the moment of consecration, which, of course, they could not perform since they were not priests. And they would just bow their heads and pray silently at that point, try to make a spiritual communion, and then move on and continue to pray the rest of the Mass. So that dedication that, of course, the laity, when we think of today in the U.S., like we, I'm sure nobody has done that. That's not something that really crosses our minds. But when priests were not available, the, the laity really came to appreciate them more when they did have access to priests and God provided, but also to keep themselves in line and to keep this strong dedication and appreciation of the sacraments, even in the absence of those priests. Yeah. And you don't go into his story, but you do talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn that I think people can read because his insights from having, you know, being, being imprisoned by the, you know, the communist regime in Russia really today are valuable to us because he has such great insights and it and it really is applicable to our lives today. Yes, I, I quote from Solzhenitsyn so much in the book, it's so hard to pick one quote, his entire, like, all of his works are quotable in their entirety, but he, um, one sort of vignette comes to mind where, I won't remember it exactly, but he says that, that communism obviously can only operate in this perpetuation of giant lies, and so he says, we know they're lying. They know we know they're lying. We know they know we know they're lying. And yet they still continue to lie. And we still continue to believe them. So um, the the story of the emperor's new clothes really comes to mind here of everyone's playing along with this big lie. And those who dare to stand against it are called crazy. And that's really the, the first battle you have to win is to love truth so much that you won't fall for these airsoft representations of reality. That's what we see today, right? You know, politicians are lying when their mouth is because everything, yeah, exactly. you know, they, 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 get, they, they accuse you of what they're doing. And it's almost, yeah, you know, projection. to the point where, are you going to believe what you see? Or are you going to believe what I tell you you see? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, it reminds you of, 
of Sultanistan in terms of, hey, we're responsible for truth. We're responsible for defending it. And unfortunately, it's not appreciated until we lose it. And at that point, the road is really rough. Yes, exactly, because it's scary to see how quickly people can delude themselves. The line between perpetrator and victim is is very sort of fine and difficult in in communism often. But I also use analogies from Nazi Germany in uh, studying uh, these psychological phenomena. And one book comes to mind. It's called Ordinary Men by Professor Christopher Browning, where he examines this uh, group of Nazis, SS, called Einsatzgruppen, who were responsible for the murder of thousands of Jews in the East by bullets. So not at the concentration camps, but literally face-to-face shooting of these innocent people. And he talks about how before the war, these men were just ordinary men, as the title would imply. They were accountants, laborers, farmers, nobody you would really consider to be a cold-blooded killer. But then when given the correct opportunity and when the facets of society were stripped away, they easily were able to slide into this role of cold-blooded killer. And this is what happens when you don't have an objective morality is that it's relativism. Whatever is popular is fine. If something is approved and if you're told something is good, then you'll just do it. So this is really a scary portrait of those whose morality is not fixed and why we must strive to keep our morality fixed in God's truth as revealed to the church. I knew this was going to go fast because it is such a fascinating topic. This would make a great Christmas gift, right? And reminder is the title, (laughs) When the Sickle Swings, Stories of Catholics Who Survived Communist Oppression. It won't be a happy read, but it'll be a very inspiring (laughs) read, right? Yes, this is something I would be thrilled to receive for Christmas, but I am also weird. But I will leave you with what I mentioned before that, the last communist regime in Europe, Romania, fell on Christmas Day with the execution of Nicolae and Elena Ceausescu. So, you know, you can mark the day as, as a celebration in that way if you, if you need a reason. I really appreciate, again, all your efforts on this. And my guess is you're not done because there's so much more to uncover and reveal to people. But it really is. You can tell this yeah. is something that's near and dear to your heart. We tend to live in a world now that erases history, and if we don't learn from it, we're doomed to repeat it, aren't we? Exactly, and many of these stories are just disappearing because this population who survived these regimes, especially in Europe, are aging. Of course, I hope to continue with this. I implore anyone listening, if you grew up or lived under communism and would like to tell your story, I would be more than happy to include it in some future edition or project. Listeners can follow me. I just started a sub stack to keep track of all of my author work. Um, you can Google my name, Kristen Van Uden, or it's called On the Wheel. And this book will be available on November 21st from Sophia Institute Press. You can pre-order it now on the website. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.